so to reflect a little bit on this next treasure, which the word in Pali is samadhi, and this is a word many of you might be familiar with. Again, it, it's not the easiest word to translate, but I would really want to emphasize that it is something much bigger than just concentration. Um, Samadhi is looking backwards to tranquility or serenity, and it's really looking forwards to equanimity. I think the most accurate translation of samadhi is, is to gather or to collect. It's signifying this sense of unification or integration of body mind and present moment and one of the similes that is used to describe sati or mindfulness is the the image of the cow herder who's really gathering their cows from without intimidating them or harming them gathering their cows from pastures that are dried out and no longer serve them well and moving their cows to pastures where they will thrive and be nourished. This is what samadhi is really doing. We're gathering our attention from the fields that really don't serve us well. You know, the fields of rumination, the fields of preoccupation, obsession, the, the fields of fantasy, the fields of disconnection and gathering and collecting and moving our attention, bringing our sati to a present moment recollection. In the body, mind, unified, gathered. Now, this is for many people, they find that that you know, the most challenging aspect of their practice and the most challenging aspect of the path because it, it truly is swimming against the tide isn't it where we're so often accustomed to the body being in one place the mind being somewhere else entirely you know the the mind filled with thoughts or ruminations the body forgotten we're so accustomed almost to this disunification this yeah this unintegration that this disconnection so and, and we see how challenging that is in our lives, you know, where, where our minds are often moving far more quickly than our bodies are. Our minds are arriving, our bodies are still in process. How our minds lean back into the past and forward into the future. Um, it, it is why mindfulness of the body is such a powerful reminder that this is a present moment recollection. Every moment of being aware of the body is a moment of mindfulness, of groundiness where we are in this moment. It is why mindfulness of the body is, is so highly um, stressed and highlighted and foreground, both in the early teachings and in contemporary mindfulness. You know, the, the Buddha put it, when there's no mindfulness of the body, there's really no mindfulness at all. So by foregrounding the body, we're learning to bring the mind into the body. And we're actually swimming against the tide of many of those impulses and habit patterns to, 
to disconnect. And of course, this is this is a challenging journey for many and for some very challenging. You know, if you have um, histories of trauma, you know, the body doesn't always feel a safe place to be. Um, you know, if you live with chronic illness or pain, you know, the body doesn't always feel like a place that you want to be. You know, when we grow up and live in cultures that highlight, you know, images of perfection and you feel that you don't meet up, you know, the body is sometimes something we disdain. Um, you know, sometimes we, we have uh, messages from our, our religious backgrounds where there's something about overcoming the body, you know, overcoming the body, somehow, you know, really belittling the body's worth. And of course, we live with the habits of fragmentation, you know, the habits of, of being simply lost in thought, simply lost in thought. So we're learning to gather our attention from pastures where we no longer flourish and establish our attention in the pastures where we thrive. Um, Samadhi is, is this unification I've mentioned, but it's also infused with these other awakening qualities, which is why Samadhi is much different than just concentration, because Samadhi is holding within it these qualities of serenity, of, of joyfulness, you know, of mindfulness, of, investi of, of equanimity. So Samadhi has it has actually quite an affective tone, you know? And the affective tone of samadhi, quite frankly, is happiness, is well-being. You know, it, 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 it's, it's the sense of collectedness is never unpleasant, you know? It has a pleasant affective tone. It has an affective tone of appreciation, of simplifying of stilling, of calming, of gathering. Um, and it is the ground, really, of very, where insight can deepen. You know, many people have got loads, loads and loads of, of insights, and yet somehow find this dissonance between what they understand and how they live or what they embody. And, and many people question, you know, where does that gap come from? And I think sometimes it's because the, the climate of heart and mind, the climate of stillness and gatheredness, it has not deepened enough to allow those understandings and insights really sink into our bones and really be transformational. Now, much of mindfulness practice, of course, is really dedicated to cultivating this samadhi. Um, you know, when we're mindful of the body, when you do body scans, you know, you're teaching people's lessons of samadhi. When we're mindful of breathing, we're teaching ourselves lessons of samadhi. And again, it is a process, but this is really what begins to undo the veiling patterns. In Buddhist psychology, it's said that samadhi blindfolds Mara, which is, you know, Mara is another word for these five veiling patterns we've spoken about. So when samadhi is present and deeply present, the veiling factors simply cannot take root. 
They might appear, but they cannot take root. They have no, no fuel to actually be sustained. This is not, you know, an absence of thought necessarily. It's not an absence of movement. Um, and it's not just something we cultivate on a cushion. I, I so much think of samadhi as being a life practice. It's a life practice where we, we, we actually start to commit ourselves to, to giving up fragmentation, you know, and the many ways that fragmentation is born of over busyness, over doing, um, you know, over fullness, how samadhi disappears. So this is very much a life practice. And I think it's, it's where the shape of our mind and the, the shape of our heart really begins to change. You know, samadhi brings with it so much resilience, groundedness, spaciousness. As the Buddha put it, that one who is well-trained in samadhi thinks the thoughts they want to think when they want to think them and doesn't think the thoughts they don't want to think. That is quite a high bar, isn't it? That is quite a high bar when we think of so much of our mental activity feels so unintentional and unchosen. But one well grounded in samadhi is really cultivated a mind that is a friend. It's really cultivate a mind that feels an ally, that a mind that can flourish in its capacities for, for creativity, for imagination, for um, reflection, for investigation. You know, all of this is really supported and enabled by samadhi. Um, a mind that feels really a friend. You know, not something that's lurking in the background about to attack us, you know, or assail us. Really a mind that you can have confidence in, um, that you can trust in, um, and that can be, you know, part of this vehicle of communicating and embodying all of the wholesome qualities that we cultivate. Uh, Chris. Thank you. We so often see this word translated as concentration that it does feel really important just to linger with uh, a different sense of what's really being pointed to here. For me, the word concentration suggests a kind of focus, kind of narrowing. And, and really, focus is not the predominant quality of samadhi collectedness and contentment are much more integral to samadhi. Sometimes we, you know, this, this kind of contracted sense of I've got to focus the mind. Actually, all of our cultivation of collectedness and contentment can really support this beautiful, beautiful potential that the embodied heart, mind, can begin to taste and begin to access as we practice. And we can see in what Christine has been saying how, again, these, all these factors, they're not separate from each other. They, they support each other. They kind of catalyze each other. And 
the orientation towards calming, towards grounding, towards regulating the nervous system. Again, this might be a contemporary way of understanding one key dimension of samadhi, this capacity to bring our hearts and minds into a greater sense of coherence, a greater sense of uh, kind of togetherness. And one uh, forest, uh, great forest teacher of the 20th century used to compare kind of investigation and samadhi as being like the two legs of the body saying how sometimes it's helpful to lean more one way, sometimes it's helpful to lean more the other way. We can see that investigation often is quite active, and it's, it's not so much about calming and stilling, it's more about kind of opening up and inquiring. And really helpful also to have the potential to lean into the, the calming, the collecting, the cultivating contentment. This is actually not a distinction that tends to be made in contemporary mindfulness-based approaches. So uh, often there's the assumption that mindfulness is partly about you know, concentrating. And you sometimes see research papers that kind of conceive of mindfulness as basically a concentration exercise. I think this is really unhelpful and that for us as mindfulness teachers to have a sense as reflected in the Buddha's Eightfold Path that collectedness and investigation are two distinct intentions that support each other, like the legs support each other, but that actually sometimes it's really helpful just to cultivate the capacity to appreciate, enjoy, rather like Christina was saying earlier, let the sense of okayness or pleasantness in the hands begin to expand. Let that begin to fill more of the body so that we have a sense of just beginning to marinate the body, the heart, the nervous system in some capacity for contentment in the present moment or some capacity for this collecting and integrating of body, mind and present moment. And it's, it's so helpful, so helpful, I think, for us as teachers really to uh, make this an integral part of our lives or indeed just as, as practitioners to make the cultivation of samadhi a treasure or a seedling perhaps that we're really nurturing in our lives. One of our colleagues likes to, to have this question that she drops in and says, ah, oh, I wonder what samadhi might be available in this moment. And it, it's a nice one to drop into, you know, being out shopping or sitting in a traffic jam or preparing to open your inbox or preparing for a, a difficult conversation, what samadhi might be available in this moment? Because samadhi is a, a spectrum and we'll probably find that there is some samadhi available, the feet, 
the seat, the bird song, the breath, the sense of spaciousness of things, just that looking around in our physical space, we may notice, oh, this brings a little bit more collectedness, a little bit more kind of ease into our bodies, hearts and minds. And it may be, as we teach eight-week courses, those of you who do, just to have a sense of this as the, the kind of primary cultivation at the start of a mindfulness course. I sometimes reflect on what might be the difference between the body scan we lead in week one and the body scan we lead in week eight. And it might be that, that the orientation towards a certain grounding, settling, collecting early on can support, can be a, a kind of reference point that then uh, from which we move into more investigative practices as the weeks of a mindfulness course go by. It really doesn't quite feel justice to, to uh, reflect on any of these qualities for the length of time we're giving them today. We could spend a day, we could spend many days on each of them and you know, samadhi is, is a lifetime's cultivation. The, the suttas describe how the Buddha and the awakened ones cultivated samadhi even after full awakening because it's a beautiful abiding, a beautiful potential of the heart-mind. And so really kind of encouraging all of us to make this part of our daily practice. I find in my sitting practice I spend at least two-thirds of that practice time cultivating samadhi because it's so supportive for everything else and so many of its fruits uh, actually show up off the cushion and in the midst of daily life samadhi is a calm abiding cultivating a calm abiding and to so it's a way of being present in the midst of all things. Again, this is a very relational quality. But you think about the sort of practical steps of cultivating samadhi. It begins with the intention to gather and to collect our attention. And then to be able, you know, so the way you're kind of, uh, you know, stepping out of the fantasies, the stories and narratives you're foregrounding this in intention to gather and collect your attention. In one of the Tibetan traditions, it said, you know, preoccupations really don't end until the moment of your death. They end when you put them down. That's their nature. You know, so we kind of give up chewing the bone a bit and we make the intention to gather and collect our attention and to ground that attention, that simple knowing, that mindfulness in the body, in the body breathing, or in the seeing wholeheartedly, or in the, the contact points of the body. And then we begin to, to ground that and, and direct that attention. Then, of course, our next step is probably the most challenging because it's about learning to sustain that attention to sustain that connection, not to drift away, not to drift away. It's also about appreciating that groundedness, you know, appreciating that collectedness. So it has a tonal quality 
of, you know, this is a place of well-being. You know, it's almost like we're building a somatic memory of well-being. And this is actually really quite helpful because, you know, with practice, you begin to discover that you can, you know, sit down or you can go into a walking practice and you can recall that somatic memory of well-being. And suddenly it's available for you. But for most people, I was, I, I mean, I don't like to say for all people possibly, but pretty much everybody I've ever met, this, this movement from applied attention and intention, which is where we begin by focusing, directing our attention and intention to the body, that applied attention, the movement from applied attention to a more sustained mindfulness for most people, it is a journey through the veiling factors. You know, it's it's a journey through aversion. It's a journey through restlessness. It's a journey through craving for something better. You know, it, it's a journey through dullness. It's a journey through through doubt. But it's not giving authority to the veiling factors. You know, said on the eve of, of his awakening, you know, the Buddha not only touched the ground, but he looked at these veiling factors in the eye and said, I know you. I know you. That's simple. I know you. So not being seduced in a way by the veiling factors and beginning to sense this sustaining of attention. This is not just a meditative art. This is a life art. You know, because when attention is sustained, so is intention, you know, and and you think about how many instances in our life where we have regret or we judge ourselves because somehow our intentions for kindness or our intentions for patience or for generosity seem to get swept away by moments of forgetfulness. So it is about learning to sustain intention and attention. And that is really the healer of dissonance. It's, it's the healer of dissonance. It's the healer of disconnection. So this is, a, as Chris would say, I, you know, I too, I, I too give much of my, you know, much of my time and energy to cultivating and renewing and refreshing and appreciating this capacity of the heart, mind, body for this very deep collectedness. And it makes a difference in the world. It makes a difference, you know. If you can show up for someone in difficult, you know, with that in difficulty, with that sense of samadhi, it is a part of healing. You know, it's a part of offering places of safety. It's a part of being able to be effective. You know, it's a part of being able to be effective. Um, so this is not something that, um, to be overlooked or to be taken too lightly. I, I would really want to just want to read you uh, uh, an excerpt from a discourse. It's called One Fortunate Attachment. Yeah, One Fortunate Attachment. It says, let not a person revive the past or on the future build their hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let them see 
each presently arisen moment. Let them know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. One who dwells thus ardently by day, by night, is one who has one fortunate attachment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.